Hello and welcome to Next, I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Thank you for tuning in. If you get an opportunity, go to Facebook and like our page. You can follow us at Twitter at 814-NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue. Uh, today we have three very special guests to underscore three issues, two of the three issues that have really defined 2020. Uh, of those three issues, the one being America's racial reconciliation, the other being the political climate or the political election, the third being COVID-19. And so the two issues that we'll address today will be the political landscape and the COVID-19 pandemic, the uh, testing for and the vaccination of uh, COVID-19. In order to help us do that, we have three distinguished guests. Our first will be Senator Dan Laughlin. Our second will be uh, James Sherrod, the uh, president of MCIC. And our third will be Mr. Jim Donnelly, the chief nursing officer and VP of patient services at UPMC Hammond. So first we'll welcome Senator Laughlin. Senator Laughlin, welcome to the show. Uh, Marcus, first off, uh, thanks for inviting me to be on today. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, this has been a, uh, this has been a challenging year on so many uh, fronts. Uh, and I know that uh, at least for myself, I'll be looking forward to getting 2020 uh, behind <laughs> me. And I think a lot of uh, people that are watching and listening today probably feel the same way, but I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Let's start with this article. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've, I'm dealing with this, this change of weather, so we'll see if we can get through. Let's start with this article that was written by Ed Pelletella in the newspaper several weeks ago, and it talked about you joining that Texas lawsuit. And I know that you got a lot of calls because there were a lot of misconceptions about what that meant. Um, address that very briefly, because what you, what you wrote was kind of a friend of the court briefing, America's Kira. Talk about that a little bit. Well, sure, Marcus, and I, I will tell you this. Uh, I learned a valuable political lesson uh, that week uh, that most people, uh, they read a headline, uh, they make an assumption, and then it's very difficult to change their mind back or, or have them read any further uh, into what we did. Uh, we, the brief that we signed uh, did not support the, the Texas lawsuit in any way. Uh, it was just in addition to, uh, and what it was, was if, and it was a big if, and we knew that, that if the Supreme Court actually heard the Texas case, uh, we wanted our voice to be heard about a couple of issues that happened up in Pennsylvania, and that was it. So extending the deadline for the mail-in ballots for three days, that was the crux of your argument? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And it was, uh, and what it is, Marcus, uh, you know, as a lawmaker, uh, for the folks listening, we write the laws uh, the governor either vetoes or signs them into law, uh, and then the court interprets them if there's a problem. Uh, but what we had uh, going on in Pennsylvania this year uh, was a, a court that was willing to write legislation, basically. And I, as a lawmaker, I, I have a big issue with that. I think that's a, a pretty dangerous slope to be on. Mm. So as you ran for reelection, your opponent at that time went above and beyond to, to try to make sure that the public um, believed or at least thought that you pretty much walked in lockstep with President, with President Trump. Do you think that that impression added to the fact that President Trump was filing this lawsuit in Texas made people jump to the conclusions that they did with your briefing? I, I'm sure that it played a role in that, Marcus. Uh, you know, uh, political advertising is, is 
the Supreme Court itself has ruled it, that it doesn't have to be factual. And, and some of the lingering effects from that I'm still dealing with. Uh, we have people calling the office even now asking us questions about uh, some of the things that were brought up during the campaign that uh, simply weren't true. Uh, and, you know, and that was another one. Well, you know, <laughs> well, first off, I'm not in Congress, so I can't vote in lockstep with, uh, with what the president may have been working on. That was Congress in the United States Senate. We're in the state Senate, completely different body, and we're working on different uh, issues. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm one of the most bipartisan senators that we have. And I'm pretty proud of that. So I, I stand by what I've worked on. That's actually where I wanted to go next, because when you look at the polarizing environment right now in politics, I mean, the D's and the R's in many, many ways are digging their heels in for a myriad of reasons. As a candidate and as a state senator, you've enjoyed a lot of bipartisan support. There are a lot of people that traditionally vote Democrat that have supported you. First of all, why do you believe that is? Well, I, I think part of it, uh, Marcus, is the blue collar background that I come from. And I think a lot of the uh, working class Democrats in this district uh, appreciate that. And then the other thing is, is for the last four years, uh, the things that I've worked on uh, have been very bipartisan as well. Uh, you know, I, I worked on the Family Care Act with uh, Senator Collette. Uh, I worked on the pharmaceutical transparency bill with Senator Street. They're both Democrats kind of from the the far end of the state. And, and I'm willing to work with anyone to get uh, things done, you know, for our constituents. Uh, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle are on. And, and I think most of the people realize that. So as you watch the tone in Washington, and as you watch the tone between the two parties, what kind of goes through your mind as someone who has enjoyed bipartisan support? What goes through your mind as you see this deep divide in America, which seems in many ways uh, to have gotten deeper this past year leading up to the actual election? Yeah, well, honestly, Marcus, there's, there's a couple things going on. Uh, I think the rise of social media uh, has fueled that to some extent. And, and I will tell you uh, that for legislators, you know, like myself, uh, we, need to, we need to make a, a, a concerted effort to not appear uh, to be partisan and to work with others and to kind of lead by example. And, you know, uh, Senator Street, uh, for those that don't know him, uh, he came into the Senate at the same time I did in 2016. Uh, he's vice chair of the Democratic Party. I mean, it's his job to try and uh, get me voted out. And yet uh, we're, we consider each other friends. Uh, we talk offline all the time. We work on things together in a bipartisan fashion. And he and I decided a long time ago uh, that we would try and lead by example. Now, you know, granted, you know, we're two state senators in the, in the midst of 50 states. Uh, it's not like our federal legislators uh, look at us and go, man, we should be more like uh, Street and Laughlin uh, up there in Pennsylvania. Uh, but we are trying to lead by example and, and be uh, civil, have civil discussions. You know, you don't have to agree on everything. Uh, but I think if we can bring civility back to Pennsylvania, uh, I think people will start to notice and that is much needed right now. Mm -hmm. Give us your personal grade of the administration's handling of COVID-19 and then tell us why you graded as such. 
Well, I think that, you know, obviously that's a fair question, Marcus. Uh, and, you know, I've never been a fan of uh, being an armchair quarterback or a Monday morning quarterback. Uh, I think there's things, obviously, uh, as we look back with, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020 that uh, we could have done differently as a country. Uh, I think there's some things that we did that uh, are very admirable. You know, I, getting the vaccine rolled out in basically nine months is, is unheard of. And, uh, and I think the Trump administration can take uh, credit for some of that. And then, you know, uh, to give them, a, you know, a reasonable amount of criticism as well. Uh, I think just the, uh, what at least appeared to be the lack of compassion on, on the virus issue uh, prob probably cost him quite a few votes. Uh, you know, if I had his cell number, I could have called him and told him. That. Mm. So with that, well, first of all, it sounds like in two different categories. On the one hand, when it comes to the actual vaccine, uh, that you grade them rather well. On the other hand, when it comes to the way the rollout of the, the vaccine itself, the, pandem the pandemic itself was handled, sounds like the grade is relatively low. Am I accurate with that? I think that's a reasonably accurate uh, statement. Okay. I think there were some things that, you know, politically speaking, that uh, if he'd have done it a little bit differently, mm -hmm. even, even with the similar outcome, uh, he would have fared better in the election. Yeah. So take the Republican hat off and let me let me ask Dan Laughlin, the citizen, do you think that the lack of concession and the painting the process as tainted and rigged, do you think that that is dangerous to the democracy right now with everything that's being done to undermine the, the integrity of the election? Well, uh, I, I think that uh, I think that there are obviously at least some issues with the election. Uh, I don't think there was enough, um, I don't believe there's enough issues to uh, have significantly altered the election, Marcus. Uh, I will say that uh, there is a state Senate race uh, that's not decided right now in Pennsylvania uh, between Senator Brewster and uh, Nicole Siccarelli uh, that some of these election issues will have an outcome on. We're waiting to hear back from the federal court on uh, to rule on that. That was actually my next question, putting that Republican hat back on. The mixed messaging, you know, obviously as a, as a party, you're concerned about this runoff election. There's a lot at stake and the mixed messaging hasn't necessarily helped uh, that situation. And we have to see how it plays out, but that has to be a concern for the party at this time. Uh, th that race is definitely a concern. Uh, you know, it depends on uh, on how the court uh, rules on that, and we sh we will know that. We won't know it by the time uh, uh, we're supposed to be sworn in. So we're going to have to do uh, change a few rules temporarily to uh, allow for this. It's, I don't believe that it's ever happened before. Mm -hmm. So, in hindsight, one day you'll have a story to tell, sitting in the the position that you're sitting as the pandemic ravages the country and you've seen the ebbs and flows. Give us a sense of just kind of what went through your mind as this pandemic slowly started to creep into the country and as you saw Pennsylvania and your district in particular starting to suffer the effects of it. Well, I, I will say that uh, early on, Marcus, uh, when this first got started and uh, there was a talk of the shutdown to flatten the curve, uh, I would say almost 
almost all of the legislature was on board with that. You know, we we had watched it uh, roll through uh, Europe and Italy at, at that time, uh, and there was staggering amounts of people dying from it. Uh, so we were we were up pretty much on board with uh, with the initial shutdown. Uh, granted, you know, it might not have rolled out that smoothly, and, and some of the business waiver uh, issues that we had uh, could have been handled a little bit better. Uh, but I think I think where Pennsylvania itself uh, has gotten off track a little bit uh, is just the fact that the governor doesn't seem to want to work with the legislature on this. And, and I'm not saying that every decision that he made uh, uh, relative to this pandemic were, were bad decisions. What I'm saying is he would have had more buy-in from the rest of the rest of the state and, and from the rest of the legislators if he would have worked with us instead of just doing it by executive order. And, uh, and that, you know, as a lawmaker, I, I have an issue with that. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that every decision was bad, just that it would have been better for the state itself if we would have done it collaboratively. I would imagine that during this time you have your ear to the ground probably more than you have uh, in the past because there is so much going on. Give us a sense of what you are hearing from some of your constituents where COVID-19 is concerned. And again, the fallout, be it businesses closing and things along those lines. What are people saying and feeling in your district? Well, yeah, sure. <clears throat> there seems to be a fairly clear uh, divide as far as how, how we're handling uh, the pandemic, Marcus. Uh, I hear a lot from, uh, from our service industry sector, you know, the restaurants and bars. Uh, they're, you know, they feel like they are being unfairly targeted uh, and they're, they've been taking it on the chin. And, uh, you know, I, I saw, I'm sure you saw the uh, article, I think it was in the New York Times uh, that showed it was a I think it was a 1.4% of contract contact tracing uh, actually traced any virus spread back to uh, the restaurant industry. And, uh, you know, for the, for the governor to shut down uh, the restaurant industry, you know, completely, I think everyone was okay with some of the uh, distance guidelines and, and things like that. Uh, but to shut them down completely during the Christmas uh, period when they make, a lot of the restaurants make a lot of their money for the year uh, during these few weeks. Uh, I think that was an arbitrary decision that he and Dr. Levine made uh, that I disagree with. Mm -hmm. Because it's the Christmas season, I wanna drill down on a specific constituency and that is the faith community. And so I noticed that one of the things that Governor Wolf did was to give the faith community the option of staying open pending their circumstances and to just use wisdom along the way. And I know that's been something that uh, a lot of people that are part of that community in particular have been very, very frustrated about. On the one hand, you've got people packed out in Walmarts. On the other hand, when people need that spiritual solace in the past, it hasn't been available. What's the faith community saying? Well, uh, I think that they uh, are at least appreciative that they can do in-person services now that, uh, that that wasn't shut down. Uh, I will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm one of the legislators uh, that takes the virus very seriously. We've, we've masked up. I, I think you can see my mask is sitting on my desk behind me here. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, too much to ask for people to wear a mask when they're out in public until we have the vaccine rolled out. Uh, I think some reasonableness uh, on those levels you know, would, would help. And, uh, and I think that, 
you know, as far as uh, this being the, uh, you know, a very spiritual part of the time of the year for most religions, uh, I think it is, uh, I think it's good for people to be able to uh, go to church and worship. Uh, I think it's important, it's especially since it's been such a tough year. A lot of people really need that right now. Uh, but I will say, you know, uh, you can get the virus in church. I think we all know that. So you, you do still need to maintain your social distance. Uh, there's no special protection there. And uh, we, need to, we need to wear a mask when we go and, uh, and just be mindful of that. Use some hand sanitizer after if you shake hands with mm -hmm. somebody. So although we know what it looks like to see you as a legislator, going into 2021, between the uh, racial issues, between the, the, the polarizing environment and, and the political landscape, between the, uh, the pandemic and trying to roll out the, the vaccine, these are unprecedented times. What are some of your goals as a, as a legislator for 2021 with all of these things in the backdrop? Well, uh, I will I will say this. Uh, I am I am hopeful uh, that as this vaccine rolls out, that we can get back to uh, fairly normal, you know, by summertime. And uh, and the the things in my district that I notice, uh, you know, as far as racial issues, uh, it there needs to, there needs to be opportunities addressed uh, for poor people that are living in the urban core in Erie. Uh, we've got the community college that's uh, coming, you know, at least, a, I don't know if it'll be up and running by this fall. That's what I've read uh, that should help with, you know, just with some of the issues within that community. Uh, and what, what I noticed uh, in the last four years is just the, the income differences in these in these areas, I think is one of the biggest uh, issues for the racial divide, if you will. Uh, we have the poorest zip code in America, 16501. And, uh, you know, that's that's a mark uh, on this region that that I would like to get rid of. And, and the only way that I know to do that, Marcus, uh, is to bring good paying jobs to the city of Erie. And I'm definitely going to work on that. Is there anything that you would like to leave the listener and the viewer with as we go into this Christmas holiday and deal with the pandemic? Well, sure. Uh, you know, first off, I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a happy holiday. Uh, I know that uh, that it's been a very difficult year. Uh, we, you know, we've waited weeks and weeks for Congress to pass a relief bill. It, it sounds like they're finally getting that done. I think the vote's going to be today. Uh, that'll bring some much needed relief to people at the end of the year. Uh, and then just moving forward, uh, you know, my office is open. Uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm here to listen. Uh, we listen to your needs and concerns and trying to adjust, uh, what we're working on as far as, you know, what we're getting most of the calls for. So, all right. Uh, so I think the job of any legend is to listen. Senator Laughlin, thank you so much yes, for coming Marcus. on the show today. <laughs> thank you for coming thank, on the yeah, show today. Thanks for having me. Marcus. All right. Happy holidays to you and yours. And we look forward to having a visit from you sometime in the near future. Sounds good. Thank you. 
you are listening to and watching next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Uh, we're here live in studio. We now segue to our next guest, uh, Mr. James Sherrod, who is the president of MCIC. Uh, James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today, uh, Marcus. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for coming on. So as we, we talk about the pandemic, MCIC consists of three organizations, the Booker T. Washington Center, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center, and um, UECDC on the east side. Briefly, we've had you on before. Talk briefly about that partnership and what your focus is. So uh, the Minority Community Investment Coalition initially uh, got its start about three and a half years ago, and there were five entities involved, you know, but fast forward to today, uh, we have a strong relationship and partnership with MCIC with the Booker T. Washington Center and Urban Erie Community Development Corporation. We initially started MCIC for social economic development so that we could um, do projects and allow those projects to filter funds back into our organizations to support the distribution of programs and to increase the access to services between um, Cranberry on the west side and Bird Drive on the east side and then 26th Street down to the waterfront. So um, we intentionally uh, were doing some things around that until um, the coronavirus uh, came into our neighborhoods and into our uh, city here. So that thrust you into, into a new role in the community. So give us a sense of when it dawned on MCIC or yourself personally, that you had to step up and kind of step into some sort of support role uh, with the constituents that you've been serving and with the greater Erie community as well. Well, um, I, I would say it started immediately. You know, as soon as um, the awareness of the COVID-19 um, coronavirus was um, put forth uh, on, on the media and on the news outlets, uh, we got together and um, began to look at how we can educate our community and at the same time began to address some potential issues that may come forward uh, because of the closure uh, of the uh, due to the coronavirus and how our service distribution was going to be able to move forward. We knew that uh, the most important thing to people is to have access to food. And so we began to uh, talk with uh, funders and organizations that could provide us assistance in getting meals, uh, food, hot meals into our family's hands at the same time, providing access to education so that we could decrease the misunderstanding of the impact that the coronavirus could have, you know. Uh, so we moved immediately to uh, from food and, and nutrition to education, you know, uh, everyone uh, geared up to put the information out that you had to wear a mask, you had to wash your hands and how important it was to social distance. Although our organizations were uh, closed for a short period of time, uh, our staff that were, we believe to be essential workers in getting the message out to our community uh, remained uh, working in order to uh, put our community at ease, you know. Um, after we were able to educate our community on the impact and the understanding of the coronavirus, we moved forward to 
our next phase, which included enhanced screenings. A lot of people didn't understand what the symptoms were around the uh, coronavirus. And so we began to educate them, provide face masks and do a lot of outreach, you know. Uh -huh. And from there, um, we worked with the Erie County Health Department and the healthcare systems to put a plan in place to do enhanced screenings. And we screened a number of people and uh, some of them were asymptomatic, some of them were symptomatic, and we began to refer them to uh, primary care physicians through our partnership with uh, LECOM, UPNC Hammett, AHN St. Vincent, Highmark, uh, Primary Health Network, Community Health, Community Health Network, and um, everyone so that uh, they could get access to the care that they needed immediately. Uh, but that wasn't enough for us because uh, we were getting stronghold by um, the increase of cases around the virus. And I don't know if that was due to people just not understanding the impact that it could have, but we immediately moved to um, uh, expanding our relationship to do testing. Mm -hmm. So our facilities uh, worked uh, with the healthcare providers uh, to do testing at our sites. And we continue to do testing to this day. And so it's been a whirlwind for us. And we're just um, happy that uh, we have a partnership that has allowed us to um, change the mindset within our community and at mm -hmm. the same time try to keep our community safe. Mm -hmm. So, James, let's drill down on your process. First of all, you talked about partnerships with uh, various medical agencies throughout the city. Give us specifically who you're partnered with with this effort of testing. So the Minority Community Investment Coalition met with the um, uh, healthcare providers in the city of Erie and talked to them about what we wanted to do. So we met with Allegheny Health Network, uh, UPNC Hammett, and LECOM. And through these conversations, our, our entities were partnered. And so uh, the Booker T. Washington Center is partnered with UPNC Hammett, uh, Urban Erie Community Development Quality Life Learning Center, is partnered with LECOM and here at the Martin Luther King Center, we are partnered with Allegheny Health Network and Highmark in order to be able to provide access to testing immediately at our facilities. Mm -hmm. uh, this relationship has mm -hmm. been um, a godsend. Without these partnerships, I don't think we would have had the impact that we're having within our community and creating access to uh, not only information, but to testing. Are there certain doctors in specifically that you're affiliated with through this effort as well? So that, that, that's a good question, Marcus. Uh, along with these healthcare facilities, we have doctors that are working intentionally with us too. Uh, Dr. Andrea Jeffress, uh, Dr. Annette Wagner, and Dr. Anthony Snow. Those are the three main doctors that are uh, have dedicated their time um, to assist with assist in this initiative, and uh, were first to the table with us when we talked about um, bringing this here uh, process into our um, community. You know, so um, it, without um, the doctors, we wouldn't be where we are today. You know, and we couldn't do it without uh, the healthcare systems either. So we're very um, uh, elated and joyful that uh, this relationship with uh, the healthcare systems and the doctors uh, that I identify continues to this day. So to, to move forward with your process, are there specific days that you offer testing 
and is there a cost associated with those with that testing and who can come and be tested so we've been testing uh since probably our first test date was june 4th and since then we've been providing access to testing at our facilities free free of charge you don't have to you didn't have to be um asymptomatic or symptomatic um you could um go to the booker t washington center on Tuesdays between 10 and two o'clock or Urban Erie Quality Life Learning Center between 11 o'clock and two o'clock or here on Wednesdays or, or here at the Martin Luther King Center on Thursdays from uh, 9.30 till noon and then one, one o'clock to 3.30. Uh, as we go into the holiday season, our testing is going to change. Um, we're uh, restructuring our process um, tomorrow, you'll be able to get testing at the Booker T. Washington Center. Uh, on the Wednesday, you'll be able to get testing at the Quality of Life Learning Center. Because of the holiday, we will not be testing for the next two to three Thursdays here at the Martin Luther King Center. Mm -hmm. So with doing this as long as you have, give us a sense of some of the patterns that you've seen play out in terms of people accessing the testing, some of the numbers for the participants in the testing? Yeah, I think um, as we got deeper into this pandemic situation, our um, numbers have risen um, accordingly. You know, uh, as the city of Erie and the county of Erie um, came out and started uh, increased uptick in numbers for the community, so has the access for uh, individuals and, and people accessing the testing has increased. I mean, we've gone from, you know, the first four to six weeks of averaging maybe 50 tests to the last three to four weeks averaging close to 200 at our site. Uh, I would say during the weeks, uh, last three weeks, we're averaging uh, at the three sites nearly 550 tests um, over the last three weeks at each, you know, as MCIC has provided the testing uh, in our community. So with the uptick in cases, there ha also has been an increase of access, uh, people coming down and wanting to get tested. So that addresses the flow of the testing in terms of numbers. I know that there are certain things that you're seeing that give you a great deal of pause in terms of how people are handling this pandemic. And, and um, sometimes it feels like it isn't maybe isn't taken as seriously or people aren't aren't as aware as they should be. Give us a sense of some of the things that you've watched with doing all this testing that's made you a little concerned about how people are handling this pandemic. Well, you know, in the beginning, I, I believe that people thought it was something that was going to come through and be over uh, immediately. You know, but as the weeks went on and more people became positive and the messaging within our community was increased, um, people began to believe that uh, more so this virus was real. Uh, there was a lot of questions about this virus being real or, or, or fake, you know, within the community. You know, um, people thought it was just something that old people could get, you know, but uh, as, as we got deeper into this here, the numbers across the board um, shifted dramatically, you know, uh, from 
uh, people that are over 65 being, you know, having 30% of the cases to 60 to 65% of the cases being those under 50 years old, you know, and that trend continues today. You know, I think one of the uh, reasons for that is because uh, younger people believe they're, they may be immune to it, you know, uh, not so much immune, but they can recover quicker than, you know, someone that's elderly, you know, and I think that has a lot to do with the continuation of the uptick in numbers, plus the holidays. People want to visit their families and um, they believe that if they are with family, you know, although it may be the families from out of town that, you know, their family doesn't have the virus, you know. Uh, large gatherings are another spreader for our community, you know. Uh, there's so many factors that go into um, this virus just uh, taking stronghold on our community uh, I, I couldn't sit here and list out any particular um, situation where I, I see um, the elimination of it would eliminate this virus. You know, uh, we're thankful that we're, we have access to testing and we can get people testing. They can identify whether they're positive or negative through the test, testing results. But uh, this is going to take the continued uh, education uh, of our community about masking up and social distancing and um, really uh, washing your hands and staying with people that live within your family and not going into uh, large uh, family gatherings, especially around the holiday as we're going into another holiday. We see an uptick uh, over the last couple of weeks because of the Thanksgiving holiday, I believe, and um, it's an unfortunate process, you know. So James, I want to I want to hold you over for this last segment as we um, segue into bringing in Mr. Donnelly from uh, UPMC. So stick around for just a minute, if you will, please. Yes. This is next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We're here live in studio with, uh, we just got done talking to James Sherrod, who was the president of MCIC about the uh, vaccination or about the, the process of testing people for COVID-19 and the role that MCIC has played in, in community. And now we bring in uh, Mr. Jim Donnelly, who is the chief nursing officer at UPMC Hammett and the VP of Patient Services. Uh, Mr. Donnelly, welcome to the show. Morning. All right. And so there was a photo of you in the newspaper, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, giving vaccinations and you were giving some of the first vac vaccinations to your staff. So give us a sense of just the mood at the hospital when this first vaccine rolled in. Obviously it's a moment that far from over, let me be clear, but it's a moment that America has been waiting on uh, in terms of this solution process. What was it like at the hospital when they brought this first batch in? Um, you know, as, as you say, um, this has been a long road and it's certainly a, a journey that's not over yet. But as we administered those first doses, um, it was an emotional time for myself and each member of, of the staff who were receiving those vaccines. Um, we have a unique perspective in healthcare. Um, while many people and most people in fact, um, who um, get the virus do well, they, they recover and um, uh, go about their lives at the hospital. We see all of the people for whom that outcome is um, much different. And in that setting, um, from that perspective, 
um, uh, we have a much different view of the virus and that virus has weighed on us for many months now. And so when we see a, a bit of hope, a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, um, it is um, literally a, a sort of joyful event for all of us. Mm -hmm. So let's clear some things up. It says 975 doses were delivered to UPMC, Hammett, and um, St. Vincent at the same time. Does that equate to 975 vaccinations among staff? What does that look like specifically? Yeah, that, this, so this is just the first allotment. Um, it doesn't give us enough doses to vaccinate all of our staff yet, but that, that's coming. Um, what it does allow us to do is target those individuals who are in our COVID units, caring for these patients every day, and for our emergency room staff who are really at the front lines um, where each of these patients presents um, initially in their hospital course. And so we prioritize this group of physicians, nurses, technicians, and other support persons, such as respiratory therapists, to make sure that we protect them first, given uh, what their experience is every day in the hospital. We will have more vaccine coming very shortly. We have confirmed that we will have plenty to vaccinate all of our staff, and there will be more, obviously, in the pipeline after that. So this vaccine, even for those that have taken it, this is one of two? Is that how the, the situation goes? Yeah, so uh, the, the first individuals were vaccinated earlier this, uh, at the end of last week, actually. Um, three weeks from the day, plus or minus two days, uh, they'll get a second dose. And, um, you know, the, the good news is that after even the first dose, you begin to develop some measure of immunity within a week or two. Um, it's not a, a full-fledged immunity until about two weeks after you've had that second dose. So in layman's terms, help us understand the first and second dose, kind of what each dose accomplishes and how the combination of the two uh, ultimately uh, gets that vaccination process completed, if it is completed after those two doses. Right. So the vaccine simply has in it a... Um, a sort of uh, protein map, if you will, that teaches uh, our bodies how uh, to uh, produce antibodies that will attack the virus and prevent infection. It doesn't contain any live virus. It is simply uh, basically a, 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 a little transcript that your cells can use to learn how to produce the right type of antibody. And um, you get a couple of exposures to it through the shots. And at, at the end of uh, a two-week incubation period after that second shot, um, your body uh, should be uh, well-armed to fight the virus and prevent infection. And the data through, uh, we're using the Pfizer or vaccine, and the data from, from Pfizer uh, demonstrates a very, very impressive um, um, effectiveness in uh, preventing infection. So, Jim, give us the human side of this for a minute, because we, be it here or across the country, you know, we hear about these frontline heroes. And I personally, I'm happy to see campaigns like that roll out because there is a heightened appreciation for people who 
go to work every day and kind of put themselves in harm's way, if you will, in order to make sure that the, the greater population is taken care of. But there's an emotional toll that comes with that, I would imagine. And so talk a little bit about just what it's like for your staff and uh, in general as this thing rolled out and just how it's affected them outside of the job itself. Yeah, so back in March, February and March, um, we began preparations and um, each step along the way, uh, although we have been very judicious and thoughtful in our planning, um, we also uh, are uh, people and uh, we are impacted and influenced by our experiences. And as we see people come into the hospital and become ill and some profoundly ill and pass away, um, you, are, you are changed by that. You, you begin to feel that in a very personal way and you begin to think about that in the context of your own world, your family, and, um, and you watch um, the case numbers uh, creep up and it, it, it weighs on you. It's, it's been a very long time and um, I, I would not be uh, forthcoming if I didn't tell you that our staff who's been, who have been working, like you said, on the front lines, uh, they're weary from, from this long march. Mm, I can only imagine. When you think about the rollout on a citywide level, I mean, obviously the government has their hands full on orchestrating a rollout for this nationally, an unenviable task. But when you picture a rollout in the city of Erie, are you hearing things in terms of what that could look like? And do you have any thoughts on uh, maybe best practices or, or the most effective way to roll that out in the city of Erie? Um, I think the most effective way um, will begin with how well we are able to inform people about um, the vaccine, the benefits, things that should be considerations in decision making. Um, there has certainly been a lot of um, politicization and um, misinformation from in certain situations around the vaccine around um, the virus but it is important that we be very transparent to people and that we um, i guess build trust right. with our community about what this vaccine can do in terms of returning us to normalcy mm -hmm. and me, this is just one man's opinion. I really see one path back to normalcy, and it's through vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, the, the response of the healthcare workers at our organization and across any other organization you're going to find in the country or the world has been, as I said, a bit joyous. And it's because um, it is a way that we see out of this. And um, it is incredible, the, the, the data so far, for the effectiveness and the safety of this vaccine. So you actually teed something up for me. I want to bring James back in for just a second. And Jim, I want you to give some thought to this as well as I segue back to you afterwards. James, Jim mentioned something that was significant. He talked about building trust for this vaccination process. 
And I get the sense that that makes partnerships like um, that between MCIC and these various healthcare facilities that much more valuable as we move from testing to vaccinations and uh, to help people understand the value of these vaccinations and to kind of build trust in the community. James, let me get you to comment on that real quick. Are you seeing that as an additional benefit of these kind of partnerships? Yeah, uh, most definitely, Marcus. Um, we would not have the impact that we currently have with the um, uh, testing and the education going on, if not for um, the community uh, trusting what we're saying. Trust is going to be a huge factor in uh, our underserved populations uh, accessing the vaccine. If there's no trust uh, with the uh, healthcare systems and the vaccine that's being provided, that is communicated to them through us, through MCIC and our partnership, um, having the vaccine is, is just having the vaccine, you know. Uh, this pandemic has disproportionately affected the underserved population. And that in itself um, question, leads question in their mind about uh, whether or not they should receive or will, will take uh, the vaccination. So as Jim said, you know, building that trust in the community and also um, informing people uh, providing them the right information, access to uh, what this vaccine is all about and the impact that it will have within our community. You know, early on in this here, they talked about reaching herd immunity by letting everyone get the virus. That's just, that was just ridiculous. You know, here's another factor where we could get, get access to that is, is through vaccination, vaccination uh, access and uh, giving getting everyone vaccinated, you know, mm -hmm. will allow us to uh, be able to overcome this here uh, coronavirus, you know, the impact that it's having within our community. Thank you for that, James. I want to go back to Jim. So, Jim, briefly on that same point, and so in hindsight, there was a great deal of wisdom, and it actually started to lay the groundwork for this, this trust-building process that you talked about as we look forward to the vaccination uh, rolling out throughout the city, correct? Right, that's, that's exactly right. And, and I think uh, the, the um, process of uh, having healthcare workers vaccinated first, having this very informed population um, accept the vaccine, in fact, embrace the vaccine, is, is a powerful source of messaging that will help build trust. I think leaders uh, in the community taking the vaccine first in a public way are other ways to do that. Um, leadership is really important when you address uh, a situation like the pandemic. Demonstrating behaviors, adopting those behaviors are powerful sources um, and references for the public and they will follow leaders and so that's that's why this is so important, the way we roll it out and, and how we communicate it. Um, if we do it correctly, uh, it will make a big, big difference in our society, in case numbers and our ability to return to normal. So to kind of key in on something that James said earlier while we have you here, Jim, 
James talked about people even doubting the validity at some point of this, this pandemic, the validity of COVID-19 and was it a hoax? So it's, it's, it's rare that the average person gets an opportunity to hear from someone in your position who is handling uh, this issue at this level. And so I wanna take this opportunity for you to kind of address the public, the listener and the viewer on uh, some of the things that they need to consider as we kind of move through this process, whether you want to clear up misconceptions, gives, give them some additional points of consideration as we try to eradicate this from our, our community. Yeah, so we're, we're all um, creatures that um, we, we validate um, what we hear um, by our experience. And so if I don't see anyone um, seriously ill with COVID, if I don't know anyone who has passed away, I may uh, be susceptible to uh, the idea that this is a hoax. And the nature of this illness in some ways kind of lends itself to that. Listen, most people who get the illness uh, will actually go through the process at home. They may not need advanced medical care. Um, and so a lot of people may not see the true impact of the illness on this small set of, of individuals who develop a serious illness associated with COVID-19. And it's hard right now to quantify what that number is, but um, experts put that number somewhere between 10 and 20% of people who get sick enough that they're going to go to a hospital. And if you're one of those people who gets sick enough and has to be hospitalized, it is a very serious illness. You are on incredibly high levels of oxygen and other related support uh, modalities, and you are profoundly ill. And amongst that population, uh, uh, a, a percentage of, of those individuals may require ICU care, as many as half. And half of those who go to ICU may require ventilator care. And so when you back up and look at how many people out of 100, it's a relatively small number. And therefore, people can miss how serious this illness can be. But at the same time, if you get to that point, your life is in jeopardy. And, um, and it does largely affect older people people over the age of 65, 75. I, I believe in Pennsylvania, the, uh, the average age of a person who passes away associated with COVID-19 is 78 or higher. It's bounced around between 78 and 82 since the beginning. That's the average age. And in fact, uh, someone over 65 has a mortality risk or a risk of dying that is 60 times that of someone between the ages of 25 and 45. So given it, it, it's, it, it's easy in our experience to be misled and we can, we can think, hey, it's a hoax. But um, if you work in healthcare, you have a much different perspective. You see the serious illness and you understand really what this illness can do. And it is doing it to people at a rate that is higher than anything else in our community. Uh, you know, we have seen 
over the past month or so, hundreds of people hospitalized on a continuous basis throughout Erie. There's, there's nothing else that's producing that rate of hospitalization in Erie, nothing. And that speaks to the gravity of this situation. St. Vincent's, Hammett, and, and uh, Lecom have had hundreds of people hospitalized for a serious illness as a result of this virus over the past uh, six, eight weeks. And, um, you know, those of us who work in healthcare are looking toward the holidays as a point in which people will gather again, which transmission will increase. And I uh, fear a surge in the first, say, second or third week in January. So, as a healthcare professional, uh, let me get personal with you for a second and just kind of look at the national landscape. You're, obviously I'm not a doctor, nor have I played one on television as the old commercial goes. <laughs> but when you look at a figure like Dr. Fauci, and you look at all that, that he's, he's dealing with, with this pandemic, and you know, the, the armchair quarterback from the sideline is, is very fascinating to see this, this position in the spotlight and how it's being handled. As a healthcare professional, for Dr. Fauci and others who are, are bearing the weight of this on a national level, what goes through your mind when you see the press conferences as these people speak? Because you are obviously listening with a different ear than someone like myself would be. Yeah, I, I, I look at uh, individuals like Dr. Fauci, who, who, Fauci, who's he's grounded in science. He's telling you what um, the epidemiolo epidemiologic models are predicting and he, um, for the most part, is right. Nobody's ever right all the time. Um, you know, um, we are learning. This is a brand new illness. It is um, if affecting our, our planet in ways we never anticipated. So everybody's been wrong at some point. But uh, what we do know is that millions and millions of people have been, have been uh, sickened by this uh, disease that uh, our economies have been devastated and that in the US more than 300,000 people have passed away this year from it. And um, anything we can do uh, to mitigate this and, and um, reverse this trend is critically important for us. And for the moment, um, we're limited to just a few things. Wear a mask, keep your distance, wash your hands and now, get a vaccine as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. So I wanna go back to James real quick before we close out with him. James, the role that MCIC has played with screening and testing, do, is, there, is there talk about you playing a role potentially in the vaccination process whenever they start to roll it out? Is that something that MCIC has started to think about? What are your thoughts on that? Of course, um, the next phase of uh, what we're doing, uh, preparing to do is around the vaccination, you know, communicating and marketing the message to our populations that, you know, vaccination is the thing to do and uh, they should do it immediately when it becomes available to them. You know, uh, we're sitting around the table once again, uh, outlining the plan to carry forward within our community with our healthcare system partners. Uh, so MCIC, again, is just proud that we are able to work within the healthcare systems, with the healthcare systems and the doctors to bring uh, this impact and maybe change our community 
by um, creating that trust that is needed so that they have access to uh, not only have access to the vaccination, but they get the vaccination when it's available for um, that particular group. Excellent. So James, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your wisdom and, and, and you just kind of giving us an idea of what MCI is doing. We look forward to circling back with you next time. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for your words, Jim. We appreciate all the work that you all are doing uh, at UPNC Hammett and across the systems in our community. So we want to go back to Jim and finish out with him. Jim, for 2021, give us an idea of kind of based upon the flow of things right now. This is somewhat speculatory, but based on the flow of things right now, that the the rate that the pandemic is becoming, that the vaccination is becoming available, some of the patterns that this pandemic has shown. Uh, what are your hopes for 2021 as we move closer to hopefully eliminating this from um, our communities across the country? I hope, um, you know, is that we are able uh, to A, um, rapidly um, provide vaccine availability uh, to the population and B, uh, that the population trusts our medical professionals and leaders to take the vaccine. Um, time will tell on that uh, whether we're successful as a country and as a planet. Um, I suspect that as people um, receive the vaccine and as they um, suffer no consequences and uh, become immune and, and do well with it, that more people who might hesitate uh, will, will lean in and say, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get the shot. And, um, and as more people do that, we will get closer and closer to a point where uh, we do have uh, the equivalent of herd immunity through immunization. But um, there are lots and lots of variables in play here. Um, there is uh, what does the distribution look like? We've seen some, some uh, stops and starts uh, with that, or even just over the last week with um, the federal government having to adjust the number of doses going to some states. I think 14 states had their numbers reduced. Mm -hmm. Those kind of trip points can slow this process down and and delay our return to normalcy. The population's uh, trust in science and in the vaccine is another um, point of concern for us. We uh, are hopeful in healthcare that the population embraces this and that this becomes something akin to the polio vaccine mm -hmm. and uh, that there is widespread support of it and adoption. And if all of that is able to happen effectively and seamlessly, um, we could find ourselves back to normal um, sooner rather than later. Experts have um, offered different opinions on that, uh, things like early summer to late fall to this time next year. And um, with all of the variables in play, um, uh, any one of those uh, dates could certainly be accurate. Thank you for that. Jim Donnelly, Chief Nursing Office Officer and uh, VP of Vac 
Patient Services at UPMC Hammett. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. Oh, oh. And, and, uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Happy holidays to you as well. So thank you to the listener and to the viewer for tuning in to Next on WQLN. On behalf of WQLN family, we want to wish you a happy holidays this season. If you get an opportunity, again, like our page on Next, uh, join the debate at Twitter on 814NEXT as well. Tune in every fourth Sunday of the month and listen to the show on 91.3 FM. Uh, for Next, I'm Marcus Atkinson, and we will see you next time.